Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. End of intermission, part two. Yeah. What was your feeling? Uh, I, I felt sad, you know. Also felt that that film was set up by Paul for Paul. That's one of the main reasons the Beatles ended, you know, because I can't speak for George, but I have a pretty damn well know. We got fed up of, of being sidemen for Paul. After Brian died, that's what happened, began to happen to us. And the, the camera work was set up to show Paul and not to show anybody else. And that's how I felt about it. And on top of that, the people that cut it, cut it as Paul is God and we're just lying around there. You know? Okay, I love the Paul is God quote. It's so ridiculous because to me, it's like unconsciously revealing. Absolutely. How, how John sees Paul because no one ever watches Let It Be and says that Paul comes off like a god. No. You know? well, 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 the weird thing is you get these polar opposite reads that he's depressed, heartbroken, or else that he's domineering and, and egocentric, you know, an e- egomania that, that, you know, tells George and everyone what to do. So, you know, even that I can't even reconcile that, those two points of view, never mind the fact that John Lennon has an entirely different point of view, which is that Paul is God in this and that the whole thing glorifies Paul. He means that so much. He works it into the Plastic Ono Band album. Yeah. I think the jean jacket interpretation that I always hear of that lyric, I've seen religion from Jesus to Paul, is that other people worship Paul. Not me. You know, <laughs> like I've seen other people who are Paul worshipers, which I think is kind of consistent with what he said. But I, I think it's revealing more of what he actually thinks. Was Paul worshipped more than John Lennon? Like, what is he talking about? Well, maybe not. But John was always worried he was. Well, if that's the case, that says nothing about Paul. And it says everything about John and his insecurity. Absolutely. It reflects how he saw Paul during this period, which is powerful. You know, like seductive rock god. Well, that, that's fair. <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> it's funny. At the beginning of that quote, Jan Winner references them seeing the movie together. And we know from the recent Winner biography, Sticky Fingers that John was actually like weeping 
through the rooftop performance in the right. theater. You could tell, like he, sa- I mean, he says he's sad, and he sounds sad. At yeah, first. he really does. But then he quickly channels it into anger. It's kind of like he started to think about being in the theater. It triggered something. He quickly pivoted to anger. And then he kind of like circled back to the feeling again about like, I, don't, I guess the Paul was a god up there on the screen. But he does, you know, in his moment of anger or when he pivots, he actually does address this uh, narrative story about being sidemen for Paul. And the first, you know, proof point he uses is this film was for Paul, by Paul, which we know it wasn't because they were contractually obligated to do this film. And, you know, you can see Paul and John talking in in some of the the Get Back tapes about the fact that John and Paul have agreed on doing this. So it it was not just a Paul vanity project. No, no, no. um, They're required. I mean, they're under contract to do another film. Yeah. So we have a quote from Michael Lindsay Hogg from the 90s. Um, where he talks about that. You know, the thing about it's Paul's picture for Paul. I didn't think it was made for Paul or by Paul. Paul didn't cut it. Everyone was atypical then. John was atypical in relation to the Beatles because he wasn't wanting to be one anymore. And Paul, who was talking all the time and trying to run the show, that's not all that Paul was. I mean, Paul is an extremely smart, shrewd, funny, self-confident man. And he was since he was, you know, 20 years old. And so this was just, since the camera was there, and since Paul was doing all the talking, it makes Paul look like the big mouth of the group. Well, in real life, he wasn't the big mouth of the group. It's just that was happening that month and probably went on, you know. But that was the strange time. That was when they were breaking up and he didn't want them to break up. So I think that's why the picture appears very one-sided because it was one-sided because one was doing a lot and one was doing nothing. This is actually an excellent example of how the predominant narrative is so insidious that it actually fucks with people's own ideas about things they actually went through. Right. Because we have a contemporaneous clip of Michael Lindsay Hogg from the get back sessions, literally saying the opposite of what he just said. He said that he had a, he's talking to Paul and he relays a conversation that he just had with John where John does not want to leave the Beatles. But funny enough, the other day when we were talking, he said that he really did not want not to be a Beatle. He no, said no. he really looked forward not to, in other words, he didn't want that screwed up. Mm. And so I think his quote, from the 1990s, even though the point about Paul being um, very smart and capable and talented and that type of stuff, even though that point is well taken, um, we still see some of the you know revisionist narrative s- seeping in there, despite Michael Lindsay Hogg's own experience in 1969. I think what this proves is how incredibly powerful the dominant narrative is in that it undermines people's actual experience. And it might sound like we're making a fine point here because, you know, the band does break up, like, you know, a year later. So, so yes, point taken. Like, they're, they're about to break up. 
but the audio that we've got of Michael Lindsay Hogg suggests that at the time, that's not what he was seeing. He was seeing John, you know, John was clarifying that he did want to be part of the Beatles. So, you know, when we listen to these kinds of snippets from Michael Lindsay Hogg 20 years, 25 years later, he's adding, he's almost internalized that this was the story. So it is really helpful to look at the contemporaneous um, comments right. from him. And also, I think, I think it's interesting because it reflects how he saw Paul at the time, you know, which you don't have a lot of people uh, talking about how they saw Paul during this period. And he says, you know, very strong, shrewd, smart, talented, you know, that, and confident. Yeah. It's good to have that information about Paul because, again, Paul gets sidelined in the Beatles story, you know, most often. Exactly. So people want to know about dead John Lennon at this point, you know, and it's like in the 90s. Nobody's asking about Paul because he's still walking around. John and Yoko managed to take over the spotlight of that entire year through their their events and their happenings and, you know, they made the story all about them and you almost forget that this was a crazy productive period for Paul. And, you know, I think some of Paul's post narrative spin of that he didn't want them to break up, that he was sad has sort of overshadowed his actual behavior at the time. Yeah. See if we can get it simpler and then complicate it. Paul's backing band. Uh, I feel like John said it and then George co-signed it. And so yeah. therefore it's become just sacrosanct. And also it's just a good soundbite, you know? Right. Which is John's, one of John's real gifts. You right. know, he is Mr. Soundbite. Right. And, and, you know, we see that Yoko continued to promote the story. You know, there's interviews with Yoko in the eighties where she's talking about, the fact that the three of them were unhappy because they had to be sidemen for Paul. You know, she's promoting this narrative, which it has really continued. And so we wanted to get... And it, it was recently quoted in the HuffPo, right? Right. Oh, that's right. Recently. Yeah. So, you know, 2019, and this narrative still exists. It doesn't just exist. It, it's like law. <laughs> <laughs> It really is like it's set in stone and, and like Mark Lewison's going to come by and he's just going to like put it in carbonite. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. we're here to unpack it and to test it, pressure test it. And we think that there are really a few different emotional issues wrapped into this statement. Uh, I think that part of it is, you know, that Paul had become dominant with songwriting and had been leading the band in terms of, you know, from his vision. And to some extent that's true because he had the ideas. Yeah. And he probably also had, you know, the motivation and the enthusiasm and the organizational skills at that time. You know, he probably was the one who was most inclined to, to follow through. Right. So Paul obviously has been behind a number of Beatle projects. Sergeant Pepper was his concept, mm -hmm. his baby, um, magical mystery tour, Apple. I mean, Apple, I, I don't think it's 100% his idea, but I think it's mostly his idea. Yeah, I mean, George later attributes it to Paul that he was the main driver of it. And the idea of this, you know, hippie utopia, I think was largely coming from Paul. Yeah. And obviously they all co-signed the idea yes. and they all had little projects within Apple that right. they liked or mm -hmm. whatever. And Paul, you know, it's like George had the boutique and Paul had Zapple, the weird 
you know, fringe artist <laughs> label right. and, you know, um, they had a film division and, you know, whatever. And then Let It Be, again, also kind of Paul's idea. And Abbey Road, actually. And Abbey Road. So really, I mean, you know, going to India is George's idea. And then the White Album. Well, the White Album just happened when they got back and they had a million songs. I don't know if anybody spearheaded that. That was just, I mean. What although, would... he, although Paul was, you know, he, he was working on the cover. Yes, well. <laughs> the cover. <laughs> <laughs> the white cover. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he also worked on the cover of Abbey Road. And Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, and Sergeant Pepper. So, yeah, you have a lot, of, Paul driving a lot of the ideas here. Um, and, you know, so, so that's legit. Yeah, that's that's legit. So he's driving a lot of the direction and vision of the band at this time. But again, as you said, you know, for example, with Apple, it's not like they're, he was battling. There's, they seem to have, you know, been happy to participate and, and have been supportive of all of these projects. I don't think there's any evidence that Paul was being pigheaded and pushing them in directions that they didn't like at the time. Paul was kind of clear in his point of view that if you want to step up, step up and let's discuss. Don't just walk around being disgruntled, you know? Right. Yes, exactly. And if there's no other ideas coming, I'm going to propose them. And you can beat yes. you can beat them. Like Paul seems to have been open to you can beat the ideas. But you got to have one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I might push back, but then you have to do you have to argue better. Right. Make a case for it. Yeah, I like that aspect of Paul in that he's just competitive. Like he's like, you may the best ideas win. That's exactly right. Like, like, let the cream rise to the top. Is this a fucking meritocracy or not? <laughs> right, right. And and I think part of that is advocating for your own material. You know. And of course. So. Unless one of you is the daddy and the rest of you are the little babies. <laughs> right. You mean Paul being the daddy and the rest of them yes. the complaining babies. Being... Yes. <laughs> right. It's not daddy's job to advocate for you. Advocate for your damn self. Yeah. Yeah. If you're all brothers. But okay. So if that's the first thing that maybe, you know, part of this idea of the sidemen for Paul, I think there's also this idea to me, and this is these are things that I've heard, that there's a sense that he's being selfish. That, you know, Paul is all about Paul at that time. He's self-centered and it's all about his music and his, you know, putting himself, promoting himself first. You know, partly when I hear that and I look at the Get Back tapes, it's surprising to me because I think Paul actually does provide quite a leadership stance in that he's interested in everyone bringing, you know, He's, in, he's annoyed that John isn't bringing more songs to the table. And he's the one that does, they spend a lot of time on Don't Let Me Down, you know, coming up with. So it's not like he's only interested in his own songs at this time. Here's another part of it, is that Paul, um, towards the end especially, but probably on, at, on some level, always, because that's how he is, um, has very specific ideas for what he wants in his songs and like Paul likes to experiment but he maybe isn't as open to other people experimenting on his stuff you know I think he kind of like he's more apt to give people direction because he already knows what he wants right yeah and I think he sort of settled into that more and more as time went on 
Right, that he comes in and with his songs and they're fully formed and he's he's got, you know, there, some of the engineers refer to him as like the second producer of the Beatles. So I think that, you know, even John refers to the fact that Paul hears all the different instruments. You know, he conceives of what he wants to hear, whereas John seems to be much looser uh, about the production of his songs you know, which makes it more of a collaborative affair, which is probably more fun to work on for all of them than somebody who's just coming in and, yeah. and been like, I already know what right. I want, you know? Yes, as musicians, you would see how that how that would be more uh, stimulating and fun and entertaining and whatever. And, and, you know, it also might be why Paul gets along so much better with Jeff Emmerich and George Martin as well. Right. Because... Well, he's almost co-producing. Like he, there's a collaboration process that's right. going on with these guys that, for him and for them, is probably really fulfilling. You know that he is he's not collaborating so much with the musicians as he is with the producer and the engineer. That's right. right. That's right. You can see how this creates a tension in the band because it's sort of it elevates Paul to the producer. Like he's on the he's on the level with George. And Jeff, right? Yes. Because they're all speaking the same language. We know there was a lot of tension between Paul and George over this, and there's actually a scene of it in the in Michael Lindsay Hogg's um, cut of the Let It Be movie that everybody knows about. Yes. Yes. They're as I as I call it, they're they're very British argument, <laughs> which is exactly <laughs> supposed to be a huge fight. It's like they're mildly disagreeing politely, politely um, exactly. where everybody where both of them agree to do whatever the other person wants. <laughs> right. <laughs> Passive aggressively. Yes. Right. So um, and then we have an actual lunchroom tape. Um, where John and Paul are talking about it, and John is trying to, to trying to tell Paul um, where George is coming from, and he like he actually says, "You try to make George play competently because you're afraid that what he's going to play is you're not going to like it." And then John even says, "Like that's what we do to him, and that's what you do to me." You try and make George play. Right. So, I mean, and then that, that's important. That feel that means that John no longer feels a freedom to play with Paul's songs, you know, and I guess he feels critiqued by Paul or that he is, is being judged by Paul in some way. I mean, it was also, it was also pretty striking that, they were able to talk like that too. I mean, and this is like in the, you know, lunch, like they were just trying to have a private conversation in, in the cafeteria or whatever. While all these creepers are around, like apparently taping them against their knowledge, but like, you know, that John's able to say that this is, this is a thing that you do. Like he's just holding up a mirror and saying like, this is what it, this is how it feels when you do this. And Paul's listening to him. I mean, he lets him, you know, yeah, well, he listens to him for a long time. Something that we see that I thought was really interesting is you do see John and Paul talking and communicating occasionally quite well. And you can see that these are conversations that they've had over the years. And, 
you know, they are Lennon McCartney. They do talk and argue about their songs. This is not, you know, as much as we say that they don't communicate well enough. Like, they're not just being passive aggressive and quiet about stuff 24 right. 7. Like, they do, they can have moments where they hash things out. Yes. And then, here's the final thing I think that one of the factors at the heart of why John has problems with Let It Be and Long Unwinding Road, for example, in addition to the fact that I think John rejects or doesn't like what these songs are saying to him content-wise, I think there is another issue, which is that Paul has excluded John from the creative construction of these songs. I, I think this is getting to the emotional center of John's complaint about being Paul Sideman, which really has to do with their musical partnership and collaboration, you know, that it's very, very personal to him. And it reflects one of the greatest hurts of his life, which is feeling locked out of some of Paul's greatest creations and maybe not necessary to them. And it's interesting because even though John, John's the one who has kind of created this situation, manufactured this situation where they don't have any privacy, where it, it, things are awkward between them and, and songwriting is more difficult. I think he still wants to be needed and wanted by Paul creatively. And he's really not for these songs. These songs are, you know, Paul just develops them on his own. Yeah, I definitely. I think that he wants to be wanted and needed by Paul so badly that you know, after the breakup, he has to convince himself or try to convince himself that Paul just isn't as good without him. You know, like, yeah. and Paul will never be right. as good without well, him. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's kind of the story that he tells the press who start to spin that, unfortunately. You know, it's like they don't actually look at what Paul is doing. They take John's, you know, they take John's word and then run with that story. And you never hear Paul saying that kind of thing about John, you know? Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, that may or may not be your opinion. You may think, well, you know, Paul's best period was in his youth or whatever. But um, even if you think that, there's no reason for his ex-partner to be saying that, like, at every opportunity, except either just to elevate his own ego, right? Or his own status or whatever. Yeah, and diminish or, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Just to say I'm better than him. Yeah. Or it's to say that he's not as good without me. He has a loss without me. Right. He's going to regret it, you know? Right, which I think indicates there's a, a fundamental hurt there that he's still fighting at some point. You know, you see you would have you were better with me that it, you know, that that if you would have just left out of boredom or felt like, you know, he wasn't stimulated then I don't think there would be this underlying pain and need to convince himself of this. Well, an obsession. I mean, yeah. it's an obsession. Yeah. This, and, yes, I mean, exactly. Paul is competitive. Don't get me wrong. And I 100% believe that Paul enjoys being successful. So I'm not saying that, that Paul isn't pleased with himself, you know, when he has successes without John. Of course he does. So he did, you know. Of course, he wants to go on and live a 
fulfilling, successful, happy life after the breakup, but he doesn't seem to have the same need that John has to constantly be reassuring himself to like an obsessive level that John is miserable without him and that he'll never do as good and that he'll never top himself, you know, when we were together. Right. You don't, you don't hear, at least publicly, you don't hear any of that from Paul. You, you, you know, Paul is never critical of John or John's work publicly, you know, after that. So, and you know, I haven't heard any accounts of him saying this, so this doesn't seem to be his issue as much. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a one-sided issue. I mean, regardless of what Paul thinks of each album or whatever. Yeah. So to get back to John's original complaint about becoming Paul's sidemen, perhaps the idea that Paul doesn't need John is at the core of that complaint. And the idea that Paul could become and was becoming too independent is the real problem. But there is probably a grain of truth to what John said. You know, things had gotten a little unequal, but it probably had more to do with the fact that Paul had developed additional musical skills at this point, production skills. And, you know, he just had this relentless drive and was so productive and full of ideas that that's the issue rather than it being about a power grab or that Paul only cared about his success or that he wanted to elevate himself and outshine the Beatles. You know, the other thing that's super annoying is that nobody ever makes the case that like the Beatles just went downhill from 66 on, you know, like, like, like once Paul stepped up, the Beatles became shit. I only like those early albums. Right. I know. They, they, there, so many people talk out of both sides of their mouth. If John is, John's making a case was like, Paul is a terrible leader and he should have been fired or whatever. But it's like, what is the evidence of, of his shitty leadership? Besides the fact that like your feelings got right, right. That, on. That's basically the evidence. John got disgruntled. Right. Because, because the products that the Beatles are putting out are universally loved. Right. Yeah, they're, the, they're, for, they're biggest, under Paul's leadership. Yeah, they're biggest sellers. They're most acclaimed albums. If you if you want to make the argument that Paul was an awful leader, you should have better support than like I didn't like it. And again, if if this was like a nuanced debate that people were like, yeah, well, you know, Paul was definitely the best leader in terms of like their creative output and their creative vision. But on the other hand, it created some problems interpersonally within the band. Like that's a that's a fine conversation to have. But nobody has that conversation. The right. conversation is always like, well, John said he was bossy and Paul ruined the band with his bossiness. And right. he had no business being the leader. It's like, oh, well. Well, his track record was actually pretty fucking good so sounds like he actually was quite a good leader <laughs> and yet every jean jacket author tries to tell me that paul's leadership was the death of the beatles and i never get their rationale i mean i think from reading their books that they make the point that john is furious that paul has usurped him and it seems to be illegitimately in their eyes And so this is when John, since mid-68, has been fighting back for power. And, you know, weirdly, they seem to make the claim that John is the leader at this point. And yet, you know, when you look at all the actions within this period, the the Let It Be 
Abbey Road, both spearheaded by Paul, and John brought in Klein, which he can't get Paul to sign. So, you know, it, I just don't know what their support of, is of right. great leadership. And especially, I think also great leadership involves a mentorship, a vision, you know, all these kinds of things that, of course. you yes. know, that we're not seeing, seeing from, from John. Yeah. No, I know. So anyways, yes. So, maybe, so, so he's a leader and he's also angry that he's no longer the leader. Is that, is that their argument, basically? Yes. Yes. Okay. So it's not that he's leading or that he's the leader. It's that he deserves to be the leader. I, that may be what's underneath it, is that they are angry on behalf of John. You know, like I said, yes. it's seen as a usurping of power and it's illegitimate on Paul's part. You know, that that's the, you know, and, and instead, because... Well, they're simultaneously making the argument that, like, John is the leader and he's leading, but he also isn't interested in the Beatles. Oh, right, Like, right. which is it? Well, and they also make the point that Paul is not the leader, and yet he is doing everything, which is really annoying, and it's Paul's band, you know? So is it ridiculous. I mean, the thing is, is that I think that Paul was very happy with co-leadership. It's not like he's battling for pure leadership. I think he just stepped up because there was avoid there and because he was on fire creatively you know i agree he has the goods and he's showing up and he's working the hardest and you know what thank you paul for doing that and and like why is paul trying to usurp john's leadership like who wants to run this shit show (laughs) why is paul like you really think paul is dying to hurt these cats right into the studio I mean, all Paul wants is them to continue as a functioning musical group. I think that that's what he wants. He loves the music they make together. He loved his creative partnership with John. I think that these are all things that he wanted to continue. And the thing that bothers me is it's almost positioned as a weakness on Paul's part. You know, the fact that he wants, you know, it's like poor Paul just was so in love with the Beatles and he wanted them to continue it's like maybe paul recognized that this was the fucking best thing they were ever gonna do and there was there was a magic and he was able to see that you know and it could be seen as a mature point of view too like he it weirdly is always considered to be so egocentric at this time and yet again wants to be part of the group you don't see paul saying hey i'm fucking paul mccartney i'm gonna leave you guys he are holding me easy- back he could have easily done that that's the whole point yeah because we see paul as a prize I mean, we see John as a prize as well, but, you know, Paul is a huge prize and we're not sure why he's never quite treated that way. Inside One, we talked about Paul's ability to tap into a collective consciousness and how he sometimes has good instincts. And I think... Get Back is Paul's intuitive attempt to ground them in the songs of their youth. And actually, there is um, a school of thought that supports this thinking. In fact, a couple therapists say it's healthy to revisit the things that bonded you when you were happy. So Paul's instinct is very good here. You know, maybe intuitively he had this feeling that if they got back to what originally bonded them, you know, to their roots, that it would help repair them. And we see that, you know, John responds well to this, at least musically. It also references the general idea of, you know, returning to the roots, going back to basics that he proposed in the divorce meeting. And then Paul actually goes back to uh, this idea with wings. So there is a notion of reinvention, you know, get back 
could be an alternate thread in his mind that maybe we can reinvent. It's not a bad idea. Well, the, well, the thing is that Paul ends up doing all of that anyway without the Beatles. Right. So I, I don't even think... I think that this is something that maybe was percolating in his mind anyways. And, you know, I'm sure he would have preferred to have done that with the Beatles. That's an excellent parallel to what John is going through. Because John is doing the same thing. But John is like, uh, I'm going in the peace movement and dictate uh, direction. And Paul's like, I want to do, like, little clubs. I want to invent lo-fi indie pop. Yeah. And they're, they're going kind of in two different directions. Well, I'm not sure that the directions couldn't have been reconciled because, you know, Paul, you know, it, it's often said that Paul was going back, you know, wanted to go back, which drives me nuts because this is not, this right. is what artists do is they go very much in one direction and then the pendulum swings and they sometimes reinvent and go back to basics. And that's fucking not going backwards in terms of artistic progress. Of course it's, it's not. Going, well, it's, how is it more regressive than like, you know, your blues and exactly but this idea of going starting again from scratch rebuilding which you know he did develop a new sound for wings was you know adventurous and bold in its own way but they always frame it as if paul is regressing yes and john is moving forward right and like that's ridiculous ridiculous that's ridiculous john is moving into the mainstream he's mainstream's not the right word but he's moving into the what's the trendy you know he's the moving, trendy yeah. exactly thank you he's moving into like the um the hipster you know whatever trend right paul is going in and doing something completely different like he's breaking Wow, he's he doing is, something yeah. that no one is doing. Yeah, what's interesting because Paul's always kind of like counter counterculture. Yes, it, it, because I agree. because you're a bit of a follower when you're doing what's trendy, whereas you know he went and was really trying to come up with something new. And and again, yes. it's just so fucking stupid that these authors like aren't willing. They took John some of John's spin afterwards or John and Yoko's spin they well they don't have original thought no and they're also stuck in the 60s like they don't even they don't even know how to put Paul in perspective because they live in the past right like John and Yoko are putting themselves out there for you know attack from the conservatives for sure yeah they're being very brave in terms of you know they're putting ideas into the world I have to give them props for what they're doing is important for putting ideas into the world. Just putting new ideas is important. Or if not new ideas, they're putting what they believe are good ideas. They're talking about peace and like they're anti-war or whatever. You're right. They're taking some ideas that they think and putting them into popular culture in interesting ways. Right. You know, they're yes, finding exactly. ways of, of putting them into the popular mainstream, um, which is important. It's essentially very different from what Paul is doing. Right, and it, it actually had the advantage, even though that they got a lot of pushback from conservative yeah, mainstream mainstream yeah. culture, it was very embraced by the count, like what's trending. By youth culture. Yeah. yeah. So, it was 100% in line with youth culture. It may not be that Paul doesn't know, it's that he generally seems to be disinterested even if he knows it, yes. he just does his own thing anyways. Well, and you see this throughout his career. He, you know, he gets hit constantly right. for not, you know, not being cool and not being on trend. And and he's he's a man out of time. <laughs> right. 
Because that takes a lot of courage, too. He's fucking timeless, yeah. It's one thing to be cool. It's one thing to, like, like personify a moment in time. It's another thing to sort of transcend time, to transcend genre, to transcend, like, generations. And I think that's that, really special. Well, it is. And, and again, I think that there's... There's something so admirable about Paul kind of knowing he's going to get killed for... But when you look back at his career, you kind of think, well, he did what he wanted. In your mind, when it reaches the far end of the room, and everything is like that. So, it, I mean, you can look at it like, well, then, well, who was smarter? Because cause they got a brand and a legacy that, that survived. This One of the stupidest tropes that exists is that Paul is the master PR person and John and Yoko aren't. Those two are genius PR people. They are master spinners. They understand the idea of a narrative story a hundred times better than Paul. I think that Paul is, um, he's got um, some social savvy. And I think people mistake that as PR. It's not... His, his skills are just in sort of like greasing the wheels, you know? Right, right. He, he plays nice. You know, he understands that sometimes, you know, it's better to be, I don't know, it, it, I, maybe it's very old school PR, this kind of like being pleasant to interviewers. But by, by 6970, he hates being interviewed. He hates the media, which he carries with him for the rest of his life. Yes. And he is clearly terrible at drawing or creating a narrative about him and Linda that was A, heroic, which John and Yoko were genius at doing, and that B, sort of undermined some, some of the seeds that Yoko um, and John are creating. And, I, you know, as somebody who has studied this so closely, I so wish that Paul and Linda had had a PR person at the time. You know, I think that, we, as you discussed, John and Yoko got trained a little bit in this. Yeah. Um, and they had backup. They had magazines that were, you know, that's they had an outlet or and a channel for their story. Right. And Paul and Linda just closed off. And I think that that's where all of this obfuscation and this sort of rewrite of the fact that they wanted out they didn't care john's the genius that has colored everybody's view of the breakup right yeah it's vital to point that out it's vital because it poisons the entire telling of this breakup story neil is talking to Paul and Ringo about the meeting that the band had the previous night. And apparently, this is what we can glean from the conversation, John refused to speak during the meeting, which I've seen, I've seen, you know, people who are desperate to maintain the narrative that John was a powerful leader have described this as a power move. However, it resulted in George, um, calling John out on it. Apparently there was some sort of altercation between George and John about that. And then there was a, I think it was the same morning after the meeting, John's not answering his phone. And Paul seems to be sweating. Like everybody else is just like, whatever, maybe they overslept or something. And they took the, apparently they took the phone off the hook. Like, you know, back in the old days when people had landlines, 
so there, it seems like Paul is worried about that in a way that the others aren't, which I find interesting. And again, I think that the jean jackets would, I'm sure they would, they would frame that as he's worried about if they're going to be able to record his song that day. But Linda makes an offside comment that tell him Paul's on pins and needles, which to me indicates that Paul is nervous. You know, if, if my friend is doing heroin and then all of a sudden, like nobody can reach them. Yeah. I would be worried that he fucking OD'd. Right. You know, Miles has said, Barry Miles has said that Paul was very worried about John over the years and drugs. And I think that Paul's love sort of for John and care for John is, is underestimated. But, but anyways, I, I mean, but yeah, that, that's what's, uh, again, that's what's frustrating about the Beatle bros. It's like Paul is apparently heartbroken over John and doesn't want to lose his man and all this nonsense. And yet there, there's never any consideration that maybe Paul is worried about John's health and life. Right. I think that that's what we see, at least what I see when looking at the tapes is Paul is very, he's watching John. I think he's obviously concerned about keeping the, the band together. But I think through his words of encouragement, he watches John perform. Sometimes he's giving him attention. Like he, he's also taking care of John in some yes, way. I agree. I agree. And it, it's bothersome to me how that part gets lost, but all of this pining nonsense gets harped on all the time. Right. And, and I think the difference in those positions is that, when he's watching and encouraging and, and taking care of John, it's that's coming from a different place. Yes. You know, then a pining is I need, I want. Whereas when he is trying to help John, it's from a bigger place, you know, a, a less needy place of, for Paul himself. Yes. Like, a, like an almost a more paternal. Place. Right. Right. It is much more paternal. And that, that's the weird thing that we've talked about that sometimes Paul is, positioned as maternal which i guess it could be as well but he no matter he's what he's, a, he's, he's parental no he's, he's a not man. a woman why would you why would you call him maternal like what the fuck are you implying about that because he cares for some reason in the old school thinking they put him in that role but i think the fact that he is why taking... because fathers spank <laughs> and because mommy's love is that the... exactly exactly jesus christ see a therapist i know so let, let's pretend that a father loves and cares too so we'll, we'll call paul <laughs> God, paternal mm-hmm. yeah let's pretend that yeah but but that's a very different because that is um that's a little bit much more of a selfless position and a powerful position to be in that parental role, you know, and because he is protecting John and Yoko saying, if this is what they need, okay, John, if you want to go on your own, then just go hard, you know, do it, go all in, you know? And, and I think that his own selfish needs is, I just want the band to stay together, but I can't force it. You know, this is another secretly recorded lunchroom conversation. I After- love Michael Lindsay Hogg. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Michael. Lindsay Hogg. Um, after 
George has like quit and failed to show up. And they're sort of discussing what are we going to do about George? Um, there's a point where John and Paul are talking and John's kind of, you know, agitated and worked up and he's like, you know, do I even want him back, Paul? You know, like I'm trying to decide whether or not it's worth the effort to even apologize to George. You know, maybe we, I don't give a shit. Maybe he can go fuck off and we can get somebody else or whatever. Yeah. And, and then John is explaining how like, it's somewhat of a sacrifice for me to be here because I have to emotionally prepare myself just to come back into this situation and to be working with you. He literally says, I have to swallow my ego for you and smother my jealousy for you. You know, you got to love John and his aunt, you know, here, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that he actually is being transparent and communicating. What's interesting about this passage, A, is let's look at what he's saying there. Mm-hmm. It's not that he doesn't care. It's that he's finding it hard because he is. Yeah, something about being with Paul. I mean, he specifically says for you. Yes. So he's, and he's talking to Paul. So there's something about being with Paul. You know, I mean, I'm assuming in that scenario, in the, in the um, band scenario, something about being there and working with him that affects John's ego. Right. In a detrimental way. What does that mean? <laughs> right. And, and it's interesting because Paul, for the rest of his life, has actually said John was a very jealous guy. And nobody has picked up on that. And I think that the fact that they're having this conversation, which doesn't sound like it's the first time they've talked about it, means that Paul's kind of aware of it. Yeah. You know, he understands John's competitiveness with him. And it's not, I, I think that people mistake it and just think it's a, you know, a dominance who can be the best. I think it's, it's also an interpersonal thing, you know, that it's, it's hard on John, you know, that he, he wants to be there but there's there's his feelings get mixed up there. Yeah. What and and then another thing that's interesting to me is the fact that this goes from a conversation about George to you know the two of them start talking about George and then they go to sort of the yeah. crux of the matter yeah. which is their relationship and unfortunately Yoko cuts it off or you know redirects yeah. them. Yeah. And I think that you know while I don't blame Yoko for the divorce I do not think that she was helpful to their relationship. I don't know why I don't know why she jumps in there, but I you know I think there's a little bit of fear of them, you know, getting to the heart of it, maybe resolving it. I I don't know. Well, the the thing is like because the conversation is so sort of you know coded and sort of murky. Like we can't get really we don't really know what they're talking about. No, it's true. There's it, no yeah. there's no way for us to know what they're talking about, right? right? They're just they're having a private conversation. 
Yeah, and I don't even know. Who knows if Yoko can even read that, you know? Well, that's what I was thinking, too. I was I was like, oh, so they must be talking about they must be talking about something that's going on with John and Paul because Yoko says go back to George. And then I'm, and then I thought, wait a second, maybe she doesn't know what they're talking about. Like no, I, I think her spidey senses are going off. I get the fact that they're talking about each other at this point. You know, she knows Paul's a threat, so she's going to feel it when they're getting close to some emotional issue between them. It's an interesting conversation because they're, you know, they start off talking about George and basically John is saying, do I want to go ask him to come back? Right. And I think that John is annoyed with George because George has been mm-hmm. by far the most hostile towards Yoko. Yoko. Yeah. So he he's saying like, do I really want it? And I'm sure he does really want it, but it's work, you know, and he's angry with yeah, yeah. George. He's blowing then, off steam. Yeah. yeah, but then, he, so he's blowing off steam. He's not, and I think that there is a real conflict with him. But then, for some reason, that morphs into a conversation about them, which I'm sure is the harder one for them to talk about. Although, well, sure. to me, it sounds like, like, this is the surprising thing to me, is it sounds like they actually do talk about the relationship. It sounds like they've been together for 12 years. Yes, that that's exactly yeah. what it sounds like. Like they, you know that I do this and I hate right. it when you do that. Swallow <laughs> my ego for you and smother, smother my, my jealousy. Smother my jealousy. So is he saying that he's smothering the jealousy that he gets, that Paul gets attention? Or is he just out and out jealous of Paul? I mean, I don't know. Like, we know John's jealousy for Paul is problematic, <laughs> has been, and continues to be, in, like, until the end of time. Right, right. And, and and again, I think that that's the really telling thing to me is it's not like Paul's like, what? You're jealous of me, John? It's like, he's like, yeah, I know. Okay, onwards. Yes, he's like, thank you for doing it. Thank you. Yes, thank for you for coming in and, and yeah, yes, smothering the jealousy. And I know, and I'm trying to manage it, John. You know? Right, yeah, exactly. Like, it's an ongoing problem. You know, so, even when he talks to Hunter in 82 or whatever it is, and he's like, John pulled apart my songs for 10 years. Like, this is an ongoing issue with them, right? Paul said that he got crazy with jealousy. That is yeah. how he said yeah, that, that. Those are his words. He got crazy with jealousy towards the end and he wouldn't even let me hold his baby. What is this a jealousy? Like, well, here's the thing. Here, so here, here's the thing. We know that we, so we know that John's jealousy for Paul has been a problem, continues to be a problem is, a, you know, he wrote a song called jealous guy for God's sake. For Paul. Yes. For Paul. Right. About whatever happened between them. My impression is that John's jealousy is just multidirectional. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> That's the only way it works. I, I'm jealous of everything. I'm jealous of what you have. I'm jealous of what you can do. I'm jealous of people you look at, people who look at you, you know, like. Right. Anything, all of it. The jealousy is always focused, like the jealousy is always seen as Paul's issue. And I think it was a much, much bigger issue on John's side. Honestly, without like, a doubt. it took me years before I even knew that people thought Paul was jealous. I was like, Paul's jealous of who? <laughs> right. And I'm like, wait, of John? Lennon? I don't think people think that Paul is jealous of John ever. They always think that he, he's jealous of people that John likes. 
you know, that's oh, because all of those times that John crashed Paul's dates. <laughs> or was it the time when like John like attacked a woman that he was sleeping with in Hamburg? Was it the time or how that, he like, continually put down Linda? Yeah. yeah, and then and then spent like the rest of his life like telling everybody that he like he didn't even <laughs> like Paul and right. Paul's not even a good writer and he sucks. But then John does write a song called Jealous Guy, and then he does, you know, there's that quote when he talks about jealousy and possessiveness are his issues. And he never admits to it about Paul. Well, of course not. I mean, that's... Whereas Paul does admit to it about John. Paul admits to... Paul admits to anything about... (laughs) Like, Paul's like, I have nothing to hide. What do you want me to say? I loved him. I was sad when we broke up, you know? Yeah, I was was, jealous when Yoko Yoko got in the way and we couldn't write songs anymore. I mean... I was jealous when Stu was taking his attention and I wanted him to be focusing on the band. I was his best friend. And now he had this like older art school friend who was uh, taking up all of his time. Right. I lived at home with my daddy. Again, he has nothing to hide. Paul actually pinpoints jealousy as being sort of the major, one of the major issues. Later, he kind of transfers With it to them Klein. specifically, like in their relationship. He said it several times. Right. Here's another point of jealousy is that we also know that John, at, at some point, uh, like asked Paul, could he please not fuck Yoko? Right. What about that? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my God. I mean, it's weird because it, it sort of suggests that he, he sees Paul as both a threat. And I don't, I don't know if he's jealous. He'd be jealous about Yoko. Clearly, I mean, he doesn't want anybody else to be fucking Yoko. But I it's also like, think he like hates. Maybe the, you should put your put your girlfriend in check too, John. Like he just assumes that Paul is irresistible. Yes, exactly. The power of Paul. See, that's the thing is that again with this, you know, people think Paul's pining and powerless, and meanwhile, John thinks that Paul is God and irresistible. A sexual gladiator. Remember that quote? Yeah, and he needs to have Yoko to, you know, be able to stand up to Paul and Klein. And he thinks Paul is God and, and, you know, going to steal his girlfriend away. So how is Paul the one that doesn't have power or agency in this situation? Yeah, it's a mind blower. It's just been written so many times. So many times, just over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Nobody questions it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're questioning it now and just saying, look, the the issue here that Paul has called out and nobody has listened to him is John's major jealousy issues. And we have John on tape during the, the get back sessions where he actually admits it to Paul. And the interesting thing is, Paul knows it. This is a thing they've discussed. You know, yeah, that, that it's no th- secret. They're managing it. You know, John is saying that to come back in here, I have to swallow my ego for you and smother my jealousy for you. And then Paul is like, yeah, okay. So it's clear that they've discussed this before. This is not shocking to Paul. You know, he's, and so I'm sure Paul is managing the situation as well. Right. Well, here, here's, and here's something else. So we talked a lot about Paul in his songs, letting go and sort of saying goodbye to John. And the thing about all of those songs, it's a, it's a breakup, but it's, or, you know, it's about like some sort of 
loving relationship that's kind of falling apart or ending or whatever. But at an, it's a, at an impasse, you know, and, and like, he is letting go. Yeah. But but it's like Paul is making peace with it and he's being gentle. Right. Yes. yes. Like none of them are angry. Nope. None of them are bitter. Nope. None of them are. This is all your fault. You know, there's 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 no blame. There's no shame. It's no, just there's like, just sadness. It's just sadness. And it's like, I love you. I, I will always love you. And I really honestly wish the best for both of us. And I'm going to back out of the room slowly. One thing that gets lost all the time is how, how gentle Paul is being about it all. Yeah. And to me, that speaks to the fact that he knows John is a little combustible and a, and a little fragile. Yes, both of those he, things. Like, he cannot be rough with him at this time. And he is kind of like backing out slowly. <laughs> yeah. I think one is, aspect is like he doesn't want to hurt John and he doesn't want to be mean. And then there's another element, too, that I think is like maybe he doesn't want to he doesn't want to, like, throw a lit match on a pile of soaked rags. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing is that nobody knows John better than Paul. And he it's kind of the deal with the devil. He's probably probably knows he's made, you know, that he and John have this intense, amazing relationship. But I suspect he always kind of knew that if they were to break up, like John was not is not going to let him out easy. If Paul, if there's any part of Paul that is scared of how John is going to behave when they finally break up, all of that comes true. I mean, John basically tries to ruin his life. He's like, no, bitch, you are coming no. down into yeah. hell with me. Yes, exactly. And I think I think Paul knows that that you know, he must know that. He knows that that if they break up John's John's not letting Paul go and have a nice life and he's not going to let just be generous. And I I think that like I really do think it is the combo of the two things that you just mentioned that Paul loves John and this is so hard for him and he doesn't want to break up. So and he knows, you know, he's worried about John taking drugs and taking heroin. Yeah. So he knows he has to be gentle. And he, you know, again, Barry Miles says that Paul's always watching John. So Paul cares deeply. And he also knows that John is volatile. And, it, you yeah. know, it, 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 it's turned on other people and not him. But he knows that if it turns on him, it's going to be by far the worst. I mean, well, let's... Just looking at the things that we actually know, which has got to be, which has got to be a, just a fragment of all the things that John has done, all the crazy shit John did over the years, right? Like, just those few things that I mentioned, like attacking that a, a naked woman in Hamper, like with the scissors, yeah, coitus interruptus, yeah, in Paul's bed, okay, yeah, like with scissors. You know, intimidating Peggy Lipton, 
Yeah, ruining Paul's birthday when he brings Jane, you know, to meet the family, you know, when Paul is being the star. Throwing a brick through his window. Um, Crashing their their anniversary, the Paul and Linda anniversary right, dinner. Right, exactly. Crashing their anniversary. Not even to mention, like, you know, almost taking a swing at Linda. Yeah. When she's, like, heavily pregnant. Yep. And then trash-talking Linda and their marriage for the next decade. I mean, crossing out his wedding photo and writing funeral, like, that's scary behavior. Yeah. And it makes me fucking angry that this cowardly fucking Beatles fandom does not address any of that. They don't. And, and the worst part is they obsess over Paul's jealousy. When Paul has constantly, and again, it's unfortunate that Paul's point of view is never actually taken seriously. Paul has repeatedly said John's jealousy was a huge issue, huge issue between us. He's written about it in songs. He's talked about it in interviews. He said that John wrote Jealous Guy and said it was about him. And yet, and yet the story is always about how Paul's jealous. Yeah. And that's not to say that Paul isn't occasionally jealous, you know, and he's admitted to it. But the thing is, is that I think John's jealousy is about a hundredfold that of Paul's. Like the, the problem is on John's side. And yet the world. The, the, the problem is John's behavior. I'm not talking about Paul's emo- like, you know, right. Who knows what Paul's emotions are? I'm not. That's not what I'm well, talking he's, about. He's, ad- he's admitted to you know, being jealous a couple of times, whereas specifically in regards to John, whereas John never, John never cops to being jealous of Paul, but his behavior, as you've said, absolutely demonstrates that. And then John does actually say in the seventies in an interview that possessiveness and jealousy are his issues and that it ruined a previous relationship. Or he implies that. I mean, the hard part is, is that Paul obviously always misses John. So, you know, uh, you know, I was just thinking about that. I was just like, it's got to be so hard to walk away from someone you love that much. Yeah. Like that's the, that's the confusing part to this story is Paul always misses John. So it's not like it was so bad. Like there's something that's so good about John that keeps Paul there. But I think that what people don't recognize is there was a very hard we talk about this in our last episode, but, you know, but I, I think that Paul, you know, he never admits the negative. I think there was probably a, a dark side for Paul to deal with, you know, yeah. and, and that's why this little interlude between them is so important because it shows that this is a known subject between them. It's not new. There is another side that I think is worth talking about as well, which is, and this is not to excuse in any way John's jealousy. We've just spent a lot of time talking about that. But I think when it comes to their partnership, like when it comes to John's jealousy of Paul's talent or his attractiveness or his women, that's its own thing. But when it comes to their partnership, this is where I sometimes feel like John's jealousy was not necessarily unfounded yeah. or his, his insecurity was not unfounded. And just based on various m- remarks that Paul has made over the years, that John has made over the years, the people around them is that you get the sense that J- Paul maybe was not 
sensitive enough to John's feelings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that maybe Paul was not sensitive enough to how much John valued the monogamy or sanctity of their partnership and how much he needed special treatment and reassurance from Paul. You know, like yeah. maybe Paul just wasn't that sensitive at that time or emotionally connected enough or something, you know, there there's, yeah. but somehow he didn't make John feel safe and wanted. I, I think John later characterized it as selfish. And you know what? There may be something to that. For Paul sure. could have been, you know, he's a 26, 25, 26 year old guy running around London. Yeah. And John is hypersensitive. And very you know, needy. And also more of an introvert. Like, I don't know how much John, John liked, you know, the happenings with Yoko, but still they weren't really out on the town either. So it's just like different needs. And I think that John would have liked just a lot more private time. Yeah. With Paul settled, you know. Yeah. And Paul was just a party boy in the mid sixties. Right. Like I'm sure Paul would have been like, yeah, hell, come out, John. I, that would be great. Well, but, he says he tried to get him out all the time. Oh, right. Well, there you go. So, you know, it's not like John wasn't invited, but I just think that sometimes Paul maybe did not take enough care and was a little bit careless about John's feelings, you know, and un- unintentionally maybe trampling them just because he might have been a bit oblivious or insensitive or may not have realized how much he mattered to John. If Paul was a little selfish and self-centered and full of himself at this time, I think that that might have triggered a little reactivity from John or a lot of reactivity from John. Again, I'm not suggesting these uh, justify any of John's jealousy about women or his talent or anything. I think that he contributed to some of their relationship issues. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And some he probably was not aware of at all and some he probably was aware of you know he there's that letter to brian where he says it'll pass you know i think he probably knows that john gets really upset and then you know we've got a comment from derek saying that Mm -hmm. john always forgave first right yeah he always wanted to make up first so you know so maybe paul was kind of a shit in that regard he's just like oh i'll just avoid john till he's forgiven me yeah so yes, and in an effort of fairness, John had his John had his problems and he copped to that, that possessiveness and jealousy were his issues. Paul later on in life says, Yeah, I might have been a little insensitive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, a wee in, bit. Yes. In fairness, <laughs> Paul probably was a selfish rock star. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Who probably could have paid a little more attention to his very needy partner. <laughs> Yes, yeah, like, Paul's like, hey, come on, you want to do some coke and go clubbing? And Sean's like, no, I want to Netflix and chill. Netflix and what? No way, man. Totally. (laughs) It's Thursday night, are you kidding me? And not even to mention Paul's actual girlfriend, who he's actually cheating on. Even he admits he was a selfish boyfriend to her. Yeah, so in an effort to be fair, Paul's Paul's not an angel either. Yeah. 
Apparently, John had a late night meeting with Alan Klein, and he comes back into work the next day, and there's audio of him breathlessly telling George Harrison all about the amazing time that they had. And he sounds really, like... Hyped. And hoodwinked, and kind of like... Manic, almost, too. He sounds manic, and the way he talks about Klein is kind of like... When somebody meets a celebrity or, you know, like, oh, right, right. you know, like he's kind of starstruck and like. What do they say about us? What do they say about Ryan? But he, you know, he knows about issue Bahamas, strike. Yeah, well, yeah, but things that you just, you can't believe, you know. The same old news, but right down to where... Where it's gone. How to get it. So I, you know, well, I, I didn't really want to say it sort of half the half. I sort of, he's going to look after me, whatever, you know. That's, it's just like that. He, and he knows, he even knows what we're like, you know. Just from the, the pickup, I mean, he, he said he had to see me to know exactly if he was yeah. right or not. But with the way he described every, each one of us, you know. And what we've done and what we're gonna do and that. But just like you know, like I yeah. know you, he knows he knows me as much as you do. Incredible guy. We were both just stunned. And it was just like he's one of those guys when he was talking. I mean, so I got the same bit with Ronan and that, but it was never like this. You know what I mean? But I got a very big high. I was very just heavy after the night. Yeah. Watch some film you know, we been. all know I mean, even John spoke to the fact that like he can be hustled. Yeah. And he loves con men, you know, like he loves being bamboozled by like Mark. Well, he, I, yeah, I mean, John loves, I think that, and this is a, you know, he loves embracing people as his next savior. Maybe John likes to be wined and dined. Maybe John loves romance. Maybe that's the big thing. And maybe like, you know. Well, I think he has romantic visions for what they will do for him. So yes, yes. Yeah, that's what I mean. I don't mean romance like he wants but, to no, fuck no. Alan Klein <laughs> or the Maharishi or Jam or whatever. But I'm like, but he does talk about them all like daddies. He says he has a daddy complex. Yes, and like, he does. And and Paul really hits on this too. Like he, I think Paul yes. recognizes it, right? Yeah, of course he doesn't. Paul calls him out on it in like 1971 or whatever. Um, in a rare moment where Paul actually loses his temper slightly and says something mildly you know, critical of John. Was this in he, Melody Maker? This is in Melody Maker, yeah. Right, Paul right. calls out his daddy. You know, when you go to daddy, it is nice. You know, if you're a little bit sort of worried as to what to do next. And your daddy says, what are you worried about? Hey, John, what do you want? That's your house. But it's yes. true. But, but like, he's literally, it, it, like, when he's talking to George and describing here, like, kind of the playbook of Alan Klein and like how Alan Klein won him over. Like he he's spelling it out for us here. So there's no it's almost like there's no need to speculate on how Klein did it. Like John tells us how he did it. Yeah. With a with a shocking lack of self-awareness here. Yes. See, yes. That's, for- that's the thing about John that's it's kind of it's kind of maddening is sometimes he is so self-aware. And it's, it's attractive and it's very, 
you know, it's a great quality when he can display that. But other times, he is so far up his own ass. It's true. It's true. And he, he can't recognize anything anyone else has done. But yeah, sometimes he's very self-aware. And, and you know, in that he later is able to recognize that he is hoodwinked and he does fall for cons. Uh, but then he sort of says, well, I can only be con for so long. But it's like, I, I do think that there is a part of him, he wants to believe something's going to fix things. I think he always believes something's going to be the answer. He gets so excited about Alan Klein. Like when I heard that, when I listened to that, I sort of wonder why is John, why is John allowing this guy? Like, why is he behaving like this and not a little bit more skeptical about this is his future and this is the future of the Beatles, you know? Yeah. I think there is also an element that Yoko's also fallen for it. Well, yeah, because he he knew to play to Yoko, right? So he plays to John and Yoko by playing to what he knows John wants to hear about his contributions to the Beatles and by supporting Yoko. But I think that, you know, he, he ends up promising her a show and, you know, that I think that there is something in it for Yoko. And I think at this point that those two are so happy to have somebody come in as an an advocate of them. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, not that I, not that I'm feeling sorry for them either, because I think that John's response is, is almost childlike, you know, in his, Mm enthusiasm and and it, like you said inability to see that he was being charmed oh i i absolutely agree i i'm mystified why anybody would see it any other way honestly like if you want to be empathetic to the fact that john is needy at this time yeah. and that klein is a good con man who comes in and fills his holes then yes i'm empathetic to that like like klein just played him right right but then but then to the extent the the John went so far in terms of what he attributes to Klein in one evening that he knows him as well as George does. Like, what the fuck is John talking about? This is where I think that drugs are seriously messing with his mind. Either drugs or just like some real psychological problems. I mean, like some real gullibility and some just desperate need for someone to see him and understand him and, you know. Or maybe some of it's ego, too. Oh, definitely some of it's ego. Yes, I mean, Klein's playing to him. I also, you know, John, John signs with him or, you know, decides to go with him right away. And again, if he's, if he's the leader, is he not worried about the Beatles as a whole? You know, that one would think that he would want to rally the troops and, you know, say that this is, this is, will be good for us you know, from a leadership perspective, you know, but he doesn't, it's very much like I'm going to sign with him. But I think that your point about the being romanced is really important. And that's <laughs> honest to God. I think that John wants Paul to romance him. Of course. You know, that that's what he lost. He says later in the seventies that this, at this point in the marriage or relationship that what what was supposed to be happening wasn't happening. There was a lack of attention and, you know, selfishness. And I think that John wants to be constantly romanced and told how great he is and how much he's loved and, you know, wined and dined. And at some, well, let's, at some point, Paul stops doing that for some reason. That's right. And let's go back to the tape of Michael Lindsay Hogg saying, like, if you went to John 
and you told him, I need more from you or come back or, you know, however he put it. Um, if you put some pressure on John, don't you think he would respond? But do you think if you put any uh, pressure on him that he'd go your way a bit more? Who's this? Onto John. I don't know. But I'm not, you know, I can't bother doing all that. And Paul, you know, Paul's like, I'm not doing all that. I think that's that's part of their impasse, too. Yes, and that gets to the point of being romanced. I think that fundamentally, I think both of us would agree that John wants to be chased again, that he thinks Paul stopped chasing him in the 68 for some reason. And and I think he has. That Paul has, yes. I mean, that's, that's sort of our discussion about Jane, that maybe Paul is legitimately distracted by other things in his life. Plus, they start Apple. Plus... Well, because it's tiresome to have to constantly be chasing somebody all the time. And, and there could be that, too. As we were discussing, maybe there's an element of, like, Paul's tired of, you know. Again, this is it, it, everything is obscured by the idea that, that Paul constantly wants to be with John 24-7. And I don't think that's the case. No, we have more evidence you know. that he needs breaks. That he loves being with John, loves loves his partnership with John, but he, you know, he's the most independent of them all. So he, I think he needs space that sometimes John misreads, right? Right. One of the things that we consistently hear about Paul is that he does, he what, does he what he wants. wants. And everybody says this. This is a consistent yes. complaint. Yes. Kind of, some people admire it, but it's often a complaint that no matter what, Paul does what he wants, which again is part of the reason for his success. You know, it, it, I think he's just pigheaded in a way, but but it is a it is a dominant overriding feature of him as a person. Right. So, if we have this piece of information that he does what he wants, then I think you can actually look at his behaviors during this period and conclude that he did what he wanted. His actions reflected what his choices were. Like we were saying, it's like, I think the situation in 66 was kind of, that was the ultimate situation for Paul. Paul wants to live separately and he wants to have his own friends and his own interests and for them to explore their own, you know, areas of interest, musically and otherwise. And then for them to come together and work together and have periods where they're close, either on tour or where they're starting to make an album, where they're, they then collaborate. And they spend a ton of time together. Like in, like yeah. in Sgt. Pepper, where John is apparently staying at Paul's place and they're going into the studio together. And, you know, that's apparently an extremely happy time for him because, you know, their, right. their relationship is really super solid. They're collaborating like crazy. And yet they still have their separate they're, lives. They're, yes. Exactly, exactly. And they they live together, uh, euphemistically, if not literally, live together for like four months. Yeah. The, both of them talk about it after that, and they both use that term too. They both say living together. I was living with Paul then. We were living together. Right. Technically, they didn't live together. Like, they, like they didn't have the same address right. is what I'm saying. Right, but I think that, but they, that, that's mentally, I think, you know, they're in each other's pockets. They are totally connected. They're seeing each other constantly. 
Oh, and they're sleeping in the same room. I mean, they, so they are effectively living together when they're on yes. tour and they're writing and, and whatever. That's what, and Paul makes the point to Michael Lindsay Hogg. When we wrote all the time, we were living together all the time. We woke up at the same time every day. We had breakfast together. Right. Like You know, maybe this requires a critical mass of intimacy and seeing each other to be like really, you know, because I'm, I'm sure all of this stuff requires a lot of artistic focus and concentration and you know it's especially if they're building a theme so yes they both speak to that that there's something about the physical presence and being spending a lot of time with the other person that's important to them right yeah well and again in a in an absolutely vital point of this puzzle that is a hundred percent overlooked by everybody in penal's authorship at the end of that period of sergeant pepper when they're writing and recording sergeant pepper and they're living together for like four months or whatever after jane comes back and john has to go back to weybridge he then proposes that they all move together onto an island where they can be together forever that way he doesn't have to continually negotiate like when is our time together They're just together all the time. He has 24-hour access to Paul. Right. And I mean, you know, the thing is, is that George, uh, John goes back to Weybridge and he's got George and Ringo close by. Like, he practically has that utopia. There's only one missing piece. <laughs> well, and his wife and kid. Like, what? why Why does he want to move to to the, to the island with the other Beatles? As you said... George and Ringo are already there. He's not doing it to spend more time with Cynthia and Julian <laughs> because they all live in the house together. Right, right. The old, like the only missing ingredient is Paul. So you you can't convince me that that is not a move to bring Paul into the fold. Right. And again, you know, we've talked about this before, but the the idea that John was abandoned by his parents that that, that he doesn't want people he loves to be able to leave. He wants them chained to him so that he, you know, for all these ideas of John wanting to be free, um, he likes security. He's gibberish. He is gibberish. Exactly. He proposed them moving to Greece, to Ireland. Ringo brings up a small town. Like, he wants them to be in their own community, locked in with each other. You know, I think that that is, is an environment that John would find reassuring. Yes, and despite all of his I want a divorce or, you know, I'm threatening to leave or whatever, there's no point where John ever, like, you know, puts a pen in Paul's hand and is like, let's sign divorce papers and finalize this, ever. He's always the one holding out. Right, and Paul's writing him saying, can we please get out of this cage? Okay, you wanted it? I'll do it. And John won't do it, and and we see he's the last one to sign the papers. Yes, he continues to play games about it until he cannot anymore. Right. Until he's legally forced. Right, right. Everybody else has signed. So at some point he needs to sign too because this was nominally or supposedly his idea. You know, and again, so we'll continue to talk about this, but we see these, all of John's moves as negotiations that I, I think fundamentally, I believe that his end goal was never to separate them. His end desire was never for him and Paul to be separated or the Beatles to be completely separated. I agree. And the difficult thing is parsing out exactly what John was looking for. That is difficult. I, I'll, I'll say that. But the one thing that we can discount out of hand is that he was looking for a clean break. Right. That was never his objective. And and we don't see ev- any evidence that that's really what he wanted. 
Okay, it's just that you think you're not being In January 69, John's been dating Yoko for six months. But for six months, he has been dragging her everywhere, like between him and Paul, in every conceivable way. I mean, again, because they have that ironclad defense of like, well, we were just so in love, we had to be everywhere together. Mm-hmm. Nobody questions like, why is she, why are you bringing her into the studio? Why did you move into Paul's house, you know, making a sex tape, whatever, all this provocative stuff. And Paul hasn't done anything about it. And I think at this point, Paul's like, listen, <laughs> if he wants to have his girlfriend with him, I don't even care anymore. You know, and like, fine, let him have his girlfriend. Although, you know what? It is fucking annoying that she's here. But then again, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to tell him he has to dump his girlfriend? Like, Paul's like, I can't do that. <laughs> That's not like... Right, okay. And so there is that point where he talks to Michael Lindsay Hogg. You know, Paul makes the point that between the choice between Yoko and the Beatles, John would choose Yoko. And, I, and the, only, the thing is, like, there's, a, there's a, again, like, a, always only two answers. One is to fight it and fight her and try and get the Beatles back to four people without Yoko and sort of ask Yoko to sit down at the board meetings. Mm. Or else the other meeting is to, uh, the other thing is just to realise she's there, you know. And he's not going to sort of split with her just for our sakes. You know, and then, and, but not, uh, then it's not even so much of an obstacle then, as long as we're not trying to surmount it. Mm. Now, while we're still trying to get over it, it's an obstacle. But it isn't really. It's not that bad, you know. But they want to stay together, those two, you know. So it's all right, let the young lovers stay together, you know. But it, it shouldn't be... Can't right. operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're, like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike, because con- work conditions aren't right, you know. But yeah, mm. it's not that bad. <laughs> but he, he knows that, doesn't he? John knows that, yeah. sure. But, but does he's, he talk about it at all? No, but he's, I mean, he's, see, we've done a lot of Beatles now. We've had a lot of Beatles, you know, and we've, you know, we've got a lot out of Beatles. So that it, I think John's saying now, but obviously it came to a push between Yoko and the Beatles. It's Yoko, you know. Good stay. Oh, sure. People take it as that means that Paul is saying that, you know, he's using the, the Beatles as cover for him, that if he had, if John had to choose between Yoko and Paul, he'd choose Yoko. And so he has to be very careful. But we looked at it a little bit differently and and saw that he may be saying that if we made John choose between us, between breaking up with Yoko or pushing Yoko aside to the point where she couldn't come and, you know, it may impact their relationship so that he'd end up just with the Beatles, he would probably take, take the just with Yoko situation because he had that other situation last year. And this is one of the lowest points in his life. It was not healthy or sustainable for him, right? Right. Why is he going to choose the same situation that he ran from in May of 1968? If Paul is not offering anything different than what he was offering six months ago, why would John choose it now if he didn't choose it then? It's not that he's more interested in Yoko. It's that that if he doesn't have Yoko, he's back to a situation that, like you said, he, that is 
that was hurting that he was him, running from that he was running yes. from because it was driving him crazy. He wasn't getting the attention he needed from Paul. So it's not that Yoko was the better or more attractive one. It's that the old situation wasn't tenable for him anymore. He wasn't right. he wasn't getting the attention he needed. So it's just like he just can't go back to that. So he has Correct. to choose. Why would he? Why would he? If Paul's like, uh, dump Yoko so you can come back to the same fucking situation that we were in before where you wanted to kill yourself. <laughs> Which you told us about with your blues and then afterwards, you know? So Like, right. It's a no-brainer. Why would John choose that? Like, in order for, in order for John to dump Yoko, Paul's got to offer something big. Right? Something that would equal what she's offering. It's interesting because Yoko actually doesn't offer everything that Paul offers. You know, I do not think that she's commensurate in terms of her musical abilities. No. I don't think anybody would suggest that. Um, she does She does offer him other things, but she's not an exact replacement for Paul creatively. You know, the only time they write together is what, in 72? And that doesn't go well. So she's not... Right. You know what right. I mean? Like, She's not an exact Paul replica plus a lover. She's more of a lover that has some interesting creative ideas. And yet she's pitted as the preferable right. option. And so Paul looking at this is like, huh, well, my creative you know, abilities were not enough to keep him. And I don't know what he wants me to do because, you know. Or maybe he does know what Joan wants him to do and he's not able to offer it. Right. That he makes an assessment and says, I don't know how to satisfy what John seems to need, which is everything. And he needs a partner that can offer everything. And so he may be sad because there's, he feels like it's not even that he doesn't have agency, that he has some, he has a choice. He could try, he could try and be that everything, but he makes an assessment and says, this is not going to work. And so I have to bow out. That may be why he's grieving and because he doesn't see any solution. No. Well, and John has kind of backed him into a corner here where he's putting the decision on Paul. Yes. Based on Paul's action, we'll give John his answer. Right. Exactly. He's putting the, the onus on Paul either way. So, and, and he probably knows that Paul's not going to step up and make a play for him. But if he, do, if he sets up the situation like that, then he gets to blame Paul at the end when it all comes down to it. Paul doesn't love me enough, and Paul never really went out on a limb for me and never chose me. Paul made his choice. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's what he did. He set up a situation where he thinks he's floating enough He's provoking Paul enough to show him that he wants him to fight. And he thinks that if Paul does, that will prove that he cares. And he's not sure what he wants, but he wants Paul to fight. And if he doesn't, then it was confirmation that he was probably right to have jumped to Yoko because Paul didn't care that much anyways, right? Right. So if the ball is in Paul's court, which it does seem to be, which everybody seems to think it is, including John, mm -hmm. from our perspective, mm -hmm. I mean, judging by his songs, then Paul would know or, you know, sense or intuit that he 
has to come up with something big and offer something big to counter what Yoko was offering. And he, for whatever reason, I think feels like he cannot. You know, I mean, either because he doesn't want to, or, you know, we don't know exactly why. Yeah. Um, my instinct is that he, he's just not, he just doesn't really want to go there. I agree. But, you know, but we don't know. I read from his behavior, too, that he's watching the situation very closely and making a decision. He actually makes a decision, and that's, again, I think that I see that his moves are deliberate. He kind of bows out. Yes, and, that's exactly right. And yes. he, he accepts he, the situation. Yeah, he makes the decision to step aside and like allow John and Yoko to move forward and to be happy. And sometimes I think that part of John's anger, like frustration and anger at Paul is like, you know how how John would just go on and on about like, oh, Paul is, oh, Mr. Great, Mr. Angel doing all the, right, you right. know, oh, it's just me, Polly, Mr. Innocent, you know, yes. like always doing everything this, we should be thankful for him to do X, Y, Z, whatever. Yes. He gets riled up by, you know, Paul being portrayed as, you know, the, the angelic one that was doing something for the greater good, right? Yes. It's, it's kind of like that attitude when you, when someone, when you're trying to get somebody to like get mad at you or engage with you and they're just like, they, they won't engage. I, f I feel like John's like, fuck you. I don't want to hear that you think it's best for me to go with Yoko. Like, fuck off. What do you want? Yes. Tell me what you want. Yes. But don't be a fucking coward. Yes. Don't pretend that this is all about my sake, like what you think is best for me. You're not my fucking daddy. Just tell me, do you want me or not? And that's why, you know, like John's songs are, he's saying so bluntly. He's like, all I want is you. I can't be more explicit about it. Fucking man up and tell me what you want. And if you don't want it, just tell me. There's an anger. And that's what I read into what John is saying he's like you're pretending you don't know what's going on here right and you're pretending right. like you're doing this for the greater good but you know be a man and just say you don't want it or else fight for it or it's like if you're not gonna fight for me then don't fucking mope around and be like oh i'm so sad and i'm so sorry <laughs> you know that's why john's just like fuck you and your long and winding bullshit right like, right you don't have the right to grieve yeah like what, what the gives fuck you the right you to actually do to fight for me so don't tell exactly. me that you've tried in so many ways you know like, right like what how when did you try what did you fucking do right i tried everything yes i i got a girl i got a new girlfriend we did a sex tape we did an album we did <laughs> right. you gotta give john credit he really really tried to get back on paul's radar i feel like he gets an a plus for effort like he didn't give yeah. up easily I fucking gave you space i came to your house you get to do everything you want Anything you fucking want to, you do whatever it is you want to do. Well, and, that, you know? and that's dig a pony. You know, this idea of, I want you, but not everything can be the way you want it to. You know, that that you have to work with me here. Because that, you know, <laughs> because I know you're amazing, but it can't just be on your terms. Right? You know, that's, right. the, that's the, the, the whole thing about 1968 where he's like, you know what? Fuck you, Paul. I'm awesome, too. Yeah, I'm so awesome that all I, your eyes should be on me. 
at all times. You know, whoever is distracting you, they are not John Lennon. Exactly. Like, well, how about this, asshole? How about if I leave? How about if I get a fucking girlfriend that can also sing? Ooh, how about that? And look, she's fucking avant-garde. Well, she can kind of sing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Fancy Pants, London bullshit, avant-garde. Right. I've just leapfrogged your little interest and dalliance in the avant-garde. Now I have a girlfriend who's an artist and we are avant-garde together. Right. And she's way weirder than you. So don't even <laughs> pretend you're so artsy and woke. She's crazy. <laughs> I'm crazier than you can ever get. I'm higher than you can ever get. You're just a conservative piece of shit. I'm about I, to take my dick I, out. I, I, Stop me. <laughs> Do something about it. <laughs> So on March 12th, 1969, Paul and Linda get married. They have a civil ceremony in London. It's it's, sponta- it's fairly spontaneous. I mean, she's she's almost four months pregnant, so clearly they had been thinking about it, I'm sure. But he makes the point that they just decided to do it, and, you know, it was thrown together quickly, and they had a giant fight the night before, but they, they went and, and did it, and... It's very sweet. I mean, they look beautiful. You know, Linda's wearing a coat. They're not... She's got like a trench coat on. She's wearing, yeah, a trench coat. Knee socks. Exactly. Knee socks and a trench coat. She still But that's her. That's like signature Linda. You know what? And it was was upscale trench coat and knee socks. So she (laughs) she looked great. She looked like she had had blown out her hair or something, worn a a lick of eyeliner. So, you know, it was very done up for Linda. Paul looks sharp. He shaved his beard. It's intimate because it just looks like they wanted to get married and they went and did it. And it's very romantic. Paul looks a little dazed and embarrassed. But happy. But he does. He looks shocked, but very happy. Yes, he looks like a classic groom on his wedding day. When they're standing outside and they've got kittens and they're kissing repeatedly and they've got flowers, you know, the petals all over them. I mean, Paul literally has a kitten on his shoulder and dogs barking in the background. <laughs> but, you know, and obviously there's huge crowds because during the Beatles, Paul had been... The most, one, eligible the, mo- the most eligible <laughs> bachelor. The most eligible bachelor. Classy in the world. way to put it. The the audience of groupies always outside of his house that were crying and that was a good a lo- run, McCartney. It, it was a very good run. He made the most of it. I think he <laughs> he admits he made the most of it. And and so yes, there were some very s- sad women. As partly, I think because a Paul was getting married, but partly, you know, Paul Paul and Linda did not do a great job of introducing her to the public either. So. You know, especially after Jane Asher, but but they look lovely, and and it was the beginning of you know an amazing relationship that lasted for until she died, and you know for thirty years. His choice of Linda and her choice of him. Too, I mean, it's it's not as if he just got you know it's like <laughs> right. He just gets to pluck a woman out of the crowd or whatever. Right. But like the choice of her, I I, I honestly feel is like Paul. Listening to his like deep wisdom, learning something or? about himself and choosing the person that he's going to be. I, I agree. Uh, it was him listening to his deeper wisdom because he felt like there was something about her that he felt like was right. Yes, she was the kind of person that he wanted to build a forever life with. 
And her too, I mean, she loved him right from the start and she knew lots of rock stars. So, you know, yeah, like she, yeah. you know. She was, saw him too. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there was something in him that they, they just connected. Yeah, that's nice. And I feel like he really does, with her, he really does go in a different direction. And that's like, that's the Paul that I love. It's true. I mean, that's, unfortunately, people wanted Paul to stay the Beatles Paul. And I don't know why, because I love adult Paul. I love adult Paul, too. It's like, (laughs) once once you accept that he, you know, that he developed a different part of himself with her... And you're okay with that? I mean, I love Paul and Linda, especially early 70s or early mid-70s. Paul and Linda is like the greatest. Then on March 20th, John and Yoko got married. In a situation mirroring what had happened a year earlier on the New York trip where Paul spent some time with Linda and got together with Linda. And then they came back and three or four days later, John got together with Yoko. And this is very reminiscent of the behaviors, the sort of boomerang behavior of the two couples. Now, as we discussed, marriage was already on the radar for John and Yoko. And similarly, John and Yoko knew each other before the New York City trip in May 68. There were even rumors about them prior to the two virgins' encounter. But regardless, this seems to be when they started their relationship for real. But in both cases, it's Paul's action and involvement with Linda that seems to have triggered and motivated John to act. And by the way, that happened only 10 months before. Shocking. Shocking because the changes between the partnerships have been so substantial, you know, which if you look at John and Paul have been relatively stable as Lennon McCartney since what, 1960 or 59 or something. 57. Yeah. Well, yeah, since they got together in, in 57, things have been fairly stable until 68. And then we've got these major changes in that one, in that 10 month period. This for all the talk about the slow death of the Beatles. Oh, right, right. Please, please let that die. It was not a slow demise. This all happened so unbelievably fast. Right. It very. It, it like combusted. Yes. Yes. It was extremely volatile. Between that limo ride with Paul, John, and Linda, and this double wedding situation in March of 1969, that was only a 10-month period. Let's let's just look at this. These are guys that have been partners and best friends, so much so, so committed to each other that they fused their names together you know, in their teen years. And to suggest that these were unconnected is ludicrous. ludicrous. I'm going to sell you a a bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And weirdly, John was just desperate to get married three days after Paul for no reason. Let's just assume that they, they are in some way connected. Well, they're they're absolutely connected. I mean, I, I guess we could argue about how they are connected, yes. but but to suggest that they aren't connected is 
dumb, dumb time. Like, well, that's just I only ridiculous. say that because, and there's many authors that have, have actually said that clearly they are connected. But there's a prominent author right now who suggested they weren't. And I just don't even know how you justify that. We don't think that's true. We think that they are connected. Mark Lawson. <laughs> and, and, of course, just like when John returned from New York City and took a bunch of acid and declared he was Jesus and then invited Yoko in and announced that they were the eternal boyfriend and girlfriend of all time or whatever. He has to upstage Paul. Like, there's no way he's getting married and having, like, a private ceremony with Yoko and then going off. Like, can you imagine them just, like, privately going home to have, like, you know, like... Well, in one of the books, it talks about, and so, you know, because Beatles history is so fucking stupid and, and badly recorded, you yeah, know, yeah. there's one story about him being in a car, being driven, and his chauffeur says that they listened to the reports of the wedding. Uh, on the radio or whatever. Yeah. And that's when he comments, we have to get married now. Yeah. Now we have to get married. Now, if you're Yoko... I, I would be a little bit concerned if my boyfriend, the minute his best friend gets married, was like, we need to get married within two days. Uh, yeah. I, I'd be like, is, but this, all, is this about me? Oh, sure. Yeah. But if you're actually Yoko in that actual scenario, wouldn't you expect that? Yeah, I would. Yes. And plus, she, I, I think she wants oh, to get yeah. married. So it's kind of exactly. like, it's I like, I wouldn't yay. be surprised that he said that. And I would be like, all right, then let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take advantage of this situation. Sure. Right. I don't care why, you know, right. Why you want to get married now, but a bit hallelujah. You want to get married now. Let's, let's go for it. Right. Let's do it big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like let's make an event of it. Right. Let's make me famous. Yes. You know? Yes. And she looks so happy. Oh yeah, girl. She's like, I'm going down in history books. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Yeah. She's like, this is my biggest art show of all time. It is. It is their their romance is her best conceptual performance ever. Oh, bitch, yes. You can't ask for better publicity than that. I mean, that made her famous, infamous even. I'm not even being derogatory in saying this. I mean, I think that they believe that their relationship is yeah, their right. art, you know? So this is, but it's a turn on for them. So, I mean, I think that half the kick is talking about their relationship. May Pang talks about that, right? That they love to talk about their love. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they love to be famous and they love to be a famous couple and they love to talk about how great they are, like how much they love each other and how, you know, how much they're baby angels or whatever. And they have a innocent <laughs> child know. love. Or right. Right. You know how you're speaking about the fact that John called them angels, that people saw them as angels in their bed in. Right. Yes. They're always like, we're two virgins because we, we it was just like, like being little innocent children. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> right. Are you guys hot and heavy sexually or are you innocent virgins? Like pick a lane. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because they're, they're very different ideas. And John seems to take them to innocence constantly. You know, that, that yes. they're innocents, that they are angels, that they are like teenagers 
children. A yeah. little boy and a little girl. That's right. Just a little boy and a little girl. What, and what what's up with that? But that's that's how he positions them. You know what? I think there actually is something to that because I think he's talking about their inner chi- their inner child. Yes. Like that's his, his inner child speaks to Yoko's inner child, and yes. I think they they do have that kind of a relationship where they're they they sort of shield each other and their comfort for each other, and there's they sort of protect each other. Absolutely, and that, that's a beautiful way of putting it. I mean, clearly there is a, such a deep deep love and, and connection between John and Yoko. I absolutely believe that. It's hundred percent. They love celebrating the idea. Of their relationship. You know, like the concept yes. of their the, great love. Yes, the concept, exactly. So, you know, and, and here's the thing, is that if this had been on the calendar and Paul and Linda had just dropped in and gotten married before them, then fine. That's that's one thing. But we do know that they kind of scrambled. They wanted to get married. What was it, in Paris? Yeah, they wanted to get married in Paris. They found out that they could. Like, the, it was something like they needed. To be the, resident. The, yeah, like the application took some time. Yeah. It took a few weeks, and they could not wait a couple weeks. <laughs> like, John's like, I'm not walking around unmarried. <laughs> right. For, for another three weeks over my dead body. You know, they, they tried they multiple couldn't. locations. Right. And so they ended up in fucking Gibraltar because it was the only place that would marry them. Right away. So, but that's right. an interesting point, though, that... Why was there a rush to their wedding? What was the rush? You know, they, yeah. they'd been able to get married for a while now. You know, they'd been both been in the clear, and yet they hadn't. But once Paul gets married, there's sort of a desperate need to get married immediately. Like, they couldn't wait for two weeks to, to be a resident, to get, to get married where they wanted to. It, there was more of a rush. And they looked actually incredibly stylish. John yeah, and yeah. Yoko looked very stylish. Iconic. Yeah. They did. They did. Um, you know, that they're... They look like pop stars getting married. They do. They absolutely do look like pop or rock stars getting married. Yeah. You know, both well, in they white. were. It was all like, it was a big event. The, the, John talks about the fact that they brainstormed how to make, how to leverage the publicity and go big with this. You know, and then they came up with the idea of the bed-in, which, you know, is genius in its own way. It, it, I think they decided they wanted to use this occasion to promote something that they believed in. But it also was a way of totally eclipsing Paul's wedding. Oh, yeah. No one was talking about Paul's wedding nope. anymore. That's nope. for sure. <laughs> no. I mean, to this day, we don't talk about Paul's wedding. We talk about John and Yoko's bed in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it was a turn on because, A, they're getting, they're getting publicity. But also, I, I think that they did believe in the message that they're promoting, too. You know, that they're having fun promoting something they believe in. So... That was, and they they did it in a very sweet way. Yeah, yeah, they did. But here's the thing: is that I tried to think this through, you know, because sometimes it's just framed as, you know, John needed to chop Paul. No, whatever Paul did, if Paul was, you know, got a bunch of publicity, John was going to outdo him, right? And so he did do that. But you know, I was thinking about if my best friend got married. Um, you know, why I'd feel the need to outdo her. And I, you know, if I was extremely competitive with her and I, it doesn't work for me. The only way this situation works for me is when I put it into terms of an, an ex. Like that's the only time where I feel like the rush to get into another relationship 
to not be the one that's left alone. You know, there's kind of like, who's going to end up with somebody first. So that's the only way I sort of understand this behavior, not to suggest that Paul and John were a couple or exes, but just sometimes they behave in ways that reflect more, you know, people that had been in a relationship than buddies or professional partners. Here's the thing too, is like, I'm not saying that the only reason John married Yoko was to get back involved. Like, no. We're not, we're not saying that. I, I think that John legitimately loved her. I'm not saying that he didn't. I'm just saying that I think he loved Paul first. And the point is that we don't think they separated out of a lack of love. We suspect it was more that they had just reached an impasse. Yeah, and they, they decided the best way forward was with these new partners who they also loved. You can take your, their love in any way, but whatever it was, it was just very, very close and deep. And yes, that, that I, I, I'm glad that you clarified that because there is in no way do we believe that the, either of these relationships aren't 100% real. I mean, we, we think that they both love their partners deeply. But they, Paul and John do sometimes act, because there is this deep love between them too, they do sometimes act like... They act like lovers. We're not saying they were lovers or that they have to be lovers for this scenario to make sense. I just think they love each other as much as lovers do. Yeah. And, and, they, and, and they would agree. Right. I mean, John's the one that in the 70s continually talks about their marriage you know, and says, I hope you know what I mean, you know? So right. he, he's, he's trying to say it was real, you know, that our relationship was not to professional friends. What we're talking about is a unique emotional bond they have and have had since they were teenagers, you know, essentially since they met. That's right. So, and I think it's a good point to make. It's like, we're not talking out of turn here. You know, if John is saying that they had a marriage, and now these two are marrying other people, that they're kind of acting like, you know, that was their first marriage and these are their second marriages, you know, that right. they are marrying other people. And there is a, a competitiveness where the target isn't necessarily the world. The target is sort of each other. They're competitive to prove to each other, not to the world. Right. Yes. We don't matter. We, you know, no. <laughs> You know, no matter what they do to impress the world or the audience or whatever, ultimately, we're not fucking important to them. You know what no, I mean? Like this is for, this is for each other. Yes. So they got married to other people, and they are committed to their new spouses. Right. And following this, we see them enter a new phase where they transition from soulmates to just bandmates. Which, which goes incredibly smoothly as they adjust quickly to the new situation and are supportive of each other and remain bandmates focused on what's important. Yes. And they continue to remain mature, trusting, collaborative, and supportive of each other's work and supportive of each other's spouses. Right. And we see that they continue to have a sense of camaraderie, and they focus on their mutual best interest. Yes, always. Just kidding. 
It was a fucking disaster, and they never let go or got over each other. And things get so, so much worse almost immediately afterwards. All of which we'll explore in our next installment of our breakup series. Stay tuned. There's no other way. We can't think ourselves out. Four, two, three. We can't think ourselves out. Four, two, three. Hi, everyone. This is Diana. If you are enjoying listening to this podcast, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It will really help other people find the podcast. And I love reading reviews, mostly if they are good. So please leave a good review. Um, also, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, all under the name One Sweet Dream Podcast. And you can email us at onesweetdreampodcast at gmail.com. Also, please check out Another Kind of Mind podcast. And you can follow ACOM on Twitter at ACOM Podcast. And if you want to reach Phoebe Lord, you can email her at acompodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. MSW Media.